Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, Aaron. Today, Max and I are in the same place, sharing a microphone, and Max can't hear this. So, if you have anything you want to get off your chest about Max, this is your chance, Evan. He's he's in talk only mode. Talk your shit, Evan. <laughs> talk your shit. You might hear it later, though. So, uh, that's true. That's true. Um, on the show this week, I talked to Rob Copeland. He is a business reporter of the New York Times. He was previously at the Wall Street Journal. He has a new-ish book out called The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. Ray Dalio is a figure who has sort of been on my periphery for many years. He's written several books, uh, was like... Big talking about the U.S.-China relationship, uh, talking about the um, unusual workings of uh, his hedge fund, Bridgewater and Associates, which um, practiced a form of, uh, I believe it was originally pitched as radical transparency. Basically, everyone just like tells each other <laughs> what they think, much how Evan is going to talk about what he really thinks about Max now that he can't <laughs> hear him. Um, and as you might expect, uh, that led to, um, some pretty strange goings on in the Bridgewater offices, which, uh, Rob has dedicated, uh, years to following. Uh, this is a deeply sourced book. It's one of the more, um, fun and funny and terrifying business books I've ever read. Uh, in fact, I feel like, uh, calling it a business book is like underselling. I think uh, I would probably file it under a uh, cult literature. Uh, so this is a good, this is a, this is a good one. <laughs> I think it's time for the three of us to establish a culture of uh, radical transparency and maybe we could bring it to, uh, to Vox with whom we make the show. While we're working on that, here's Aaron with Rob Copeland. Welcome to the program, Rob Copeland. Thank you for having me. Your publicist sent me this, your new book, The Fund. And I normally, when I get like a galley, will just sort of like flip to a random page and start reading. And the pee on the urinal moment was like the first thing I read in the book. 
And I immediately was like, oh, I got to read this book. And I would have assumed that was the craziest thing that happened in the book, but it's actually like, I would say minor league compared to some of the other things. So this book is about Bridgewater, which is Ray Dalio's hedge fund. It's a style of book. I think we've talked to people before that's sort of like inside a secretive financial business, but I have never read about a business this crazy. So I guess my first question for you is like, when did you first encounter Bridgewater and what was what was the vibe of how people were talking about it when you first started learning about it? Sure. So I started as a hedge fund reporter when I was about 24, 25, and I was working for a trade publication. So we knew who Bridgewater was because it was the world's biggest hedge fund, but I didn't do anything on Bridgewater until I joined the Wall Street Journal in, say, 2015. And my impression of them was, honestly, this is a very large, successful financial firm. And so I wrote a fairly ordinary story about, you know, his position, Ray Dalio's position on China. And afterward, you know, he wasn't very happy about the story, which turns out to be a pattern of Ray Dalio and journalists. But he called me and I honestly was flattered. I was like, oh, my gosh, like I'm having real impact here. And I listened to his perspective and we just kept talking on and off throughout the years. What made this a book for me was there There was this chasm that was growing between the version of reality that Ray Dalio was talking about, and he becomes more and more famous and the subject of TED Talks and interviews with Gwyneth Paltrow and writes his own books. There's the version of reality that he talks about, and then there's the actual truth of what I was finding out as a journalist. That was just, you know, delicious. Okay. I want to zoom back in time here. So your first job is writing at a trade publication about hedge funds. And in this book, several like hilariously titled trade publications are like, I think there's one that's like chief investment officer of the magazine or something like what is a hedge fund trade publication cover and who is the intended audience? I would say, honestly, most business journalists have interacted or started at a trade publication, which have these hilarious names like institutional investor and such. And so these are expensive publications for a relatively small audience of professionals. Oftentimes their employers pay for it. And there are some which are essentially, you know, advertorials for the industries they cover. And then there are others that do what I consider to be, you know, real path-breaking journalism. I was fortunate that the one I worked at, Absolute Return, was basically all crotchety journalists who wanted to, you know, stick it to hedge funds, or at least, you know, sort of expose what it was like behind closed doors. There's a certain irony here, because we were only around because hedge funds paid a lot of money to read us. I think it was $2,000 a year or something per person. And then, of course, they would all complain about whatever we wrote about. They sort of had to read us. And is a certain amount of the audience for um, something like that, like competitors in the same industry who want to understand what the people across the order book from them are doing and thinking? Definitely. And look, if you are working in the hedge fund industry, just as an example, you might read one story a month about hedge funds in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. But we were writing you know, seven stories a week and then a monthly magazine. So we are pretty much the only game in town to cover your space. And this is true, not just in hedge funds, but in pretty much any industry has a trade publication. So a lot of times I talk to people on this show about how a writer for somewhere like the Wall Street Journal 
writes about business for a uh, lay audience that is uh, only like glancingly familiar with the industries that are being covered. In this case, you're writing for people who intimately understand the industry that's being covered. What was your education in like needing to your first writing to be people who actually really knew about the thing you were writing about? Well, first of all, I was an idiot for sure for uh, for a good period of time. The nice thing about a trade publication, and it's why I recommend it, frankly, to a lot of young journalists asking me how to start their career, is you can mess up a lot and you don't have sort of the eye of Sauron on you as you do at the Wall Street Journal or wherever else you may wind up. And look, I went on a lot of drinks with boring people, a lot of dinners. I went to conferences that no one else really should ever try to go to. And you just sort of realize that in business, so much of it is jargon and the actual concepts are not actually that hard to understand. So frankly, even to this day, I write for the New York Times. A lot of my job, I feel like, is having totally indecipherable conversations with people and then turning those into plain English for a broader audience. Yeah, there's an ongoing theme in the book that a hedge fund is just on some level a generic term for a money-making market organization. Um, you know, the origins are in, uh, you describe a fund, I think that was started in the 1940s, where, you know, there was a long, short trade implicit, but really a hedge fund now could really apply to almost anything. And I, I would assume that also sort of applies to the people who are doing this stuff is they're making it up or making the jargon up as they go along. This isn't an industry, like, I don't know, the uh, semiconductor industry that has like an industrial application. It's kind of a like figure out something to do. And what people are doing now in that industry is radically different than 25 years ago, say. Exactly. A hedge fund at its core is just a giant pool of money that wealthy people put together. And their goal is one of two things. It's either to make a lot more money or to try to not lose a lot of money. And within that definition, you can pretty much have any sort of investment. In the popular imagination, hedge funds are sort of super sexy and they're rich and the managers buy these big houses and we write about their divorces. But the actual day-to-day life of working at a hedge fund is, to be honest, to me, pretty dull, except in the case of this hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, which is sort of anything but. Yeah, I mean... Okay, so this is an interesting sort of a storytelling challenge. So you've got the big pool of money, which should be sexy, but is actually kind of boring. And then you've got the people involved. How do you generally balance those two things when you're reporting? Like, how important are the people versus like the trades and what's actually happening on the balance sheets? So there's always going to be sort of a new investment trend to write about. There's always sort of the hot trade. And I do think that people, the general public is interested in how these hedge fund managers become so wealthy, whether that's by buying up a lot of mortgages or, you know, choosing to short or bet against a particular part of the market. I think there is a broad interest in that, but the greater interest in is in who are these people? They're overwhelmingly men, the influence that they have, you know, they show up at state dinners at the White House. They can pick up and call, you know, the chief of the Federal Reserve. And what we're doing all day in and out is basically trying to reconvince the reader. This is why you care. And they care because these 
sound bites you hear, you know, Bidenomics or whatever, they are influenced by this very small cabal of people. I followed the Sam Bankman Freed trial pretty closely. It was very entertaining. Um, and one of the things that came out at the trial was that Sam Bankman Freed had started at Jane Street, which is this very, very secretive. It's not a hedge fund. It's a it's a prop trading firm. But um, one of the things that you heard from the other people who had worked at Jane Street was that one way that he had really broken with Jane Street was by being very public, being out there on podcasts, giving interviews, talking about what he was doing. This was something that was like deeply frowned upon in the industry at a certain point. For you as someone who's been covering this for a while, have you noticed sort of shifts in how people within the industry regard publicity and the role of like talking to the media or even like talking directly through blogs, et cetera? So they've always talked is what I would say. The dirty secret is they've always talked, but they have a wonderful sales pitch, which is they claim that they never talk and that they're secretive and that they are only exist for their clients. And that was sort of a very effective sales strategy until a man named Steve Cohen, his firm was charged with criminal uh, insider trading. And Steve was sort of like the paradigm of, I have a secret system and I'm never seen in public and everyone makes a lot of money. And it turned out that that was a huge liability when prosecutors went after him because there was no other version of his story out there. So I would say since then, I found it particularly easy to get managers to talk, whether that's on the record or otherwise. And they all want to tell you how you know, what they're doing isn't even that special. You know, it's very basic and they want to seem above board. Sam Bankman-Fried is sort of fascinating. He gets in trouble for that hedge fund, uh, Alameda, which no one even knew that they had a hedge fund pretty much, but that's what got him in the end. All right. So you're a young reporter at this trade publication. The phone rings. It's Ray Dalio. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you conduct yourself in a conversation like that? Like you've written about someone, they're calling you and they're saying, no, 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 you're wrong about X, Y, and Z. Like, what is that like, particularly when this isn't a one-off story, this is a relationship that's going to like be back and forth for many years and you're going to have to interact with this person multiple times? So I always tell whether it's the manager themselves or their PR person or increasingly now it's their lawyers. I always say, if I stab you, I'm going to stab you in the chest, not the back. You're going to see it coming. We can have that conversation. But if you're going to tell me something's wrong, you have to keep talking. I'm not going to take your word for it. And I have a reason for why I believe my reporting to be true. And I'm going to present it to you as best I can. But just because you say something's wrong doesn't make it so. And what has been so fascinating with Ray over many years is that at the beginning, he really did try to convince me that he was right. And flash forward now the better part of 10 years. Now he doesn't even bother. Now he just says, I'm writing fiction. And to be honest, it's sort of effective for him. She can just make it up and just say, I'm lying because what am I supposed to say? No, I'm not. It's a pretty short conversation. I think... Ray Dalio is a really interesting foil for a journalist because he got his start as a writer. Like before there was ever a dime in Bridgewater, he was running a newsletter. Like his reputation is built not 
purely on profits, but on his ability to sell his ideas. A lot of the stuff in this book is not secrets you unveiled. It's a different way of viewing the same facts. Like the principles were not a secret. He wrote, I think, multiple books about the principles. The stuff that was going on in the company in terms of these like company-wide like tribunals was sort of being bragged about. Maybe not the details, but the idea of radical candor. So how did you deal with this like idea that like you and the people behind this stuff were both in some ways promoting it with just a very different take on what it was? Well, that's sort of the the hundred billion dollar question with Bridgewater is why is Ray so committed to telling this story sort of like Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass? Why doesn't he just actually tell the truth? Because you're absolutely right. He, for the last four or five decades, even he's been giving pretty much nonstop media interviews. He's not a Steve Cohen type. You know, I, I did something that I hope that no one actually does. I actually went back with my research assistant and I, I read every single interview he'd ever given and it's pretty much the same interview since the early 80s. He's been sort of a doomsday prophet. And what he introduces in the mid-2000s are these principles. He sort of introduces this a backwards-looking reason for his success. But he was already a billionaire at that point. So it, it was like once he was successful, he began looking for a different version to tell of himself. But he was perfectly satisfied for decades just to be you know, the quote guy, the guy who you called when the stocks were up and he said, oh, it was a great day for the markets. I mean, the doomsday profit stuff is interesting. I feel like I would say like the theological equivalent would be like the preacher who's like been preaching that this is the last year on earth for like 50 years and has like a new set of excuses when the rapture doesn't come. But it's easier to do that before the Internet. Like it's easier to do that when people can't like quickly look up what you were saying previous years. How much do you feel like this story is in some ways about not the revelation of secrets, but about the compound weight of the truth being built up over time, especially because people like you can actually go back and sort of read the entire record, of course, plus a lot of sourcing within the company? It's a really interesting question. I would say the book is not an investing book. I'm not necessarily, although literally my career is to be a finance reporter, I'm not <laughs> sort of like naturally interested in finance. I would say that Ray has done me a huge favor, which is that at Bridgewater, everything is and was recorded. And so he said that this was part of his doctrine of what he calls radical transparency, so that everything was visible to everyone at the firm. What he doesn't seem to have ever really realized is that by recording everything, he opened himself up to literally decades of Bridgewater employees being able to see the truth of what he's like and then eventually telling me what he's like. So if I had written this book in 2005 when he starts to just invent the principles out of whole cloth, I'm not sure I would have even really known that he was that there was such a Jekyll and Hyde aspect to him. And when he just keeps recording everything and sort of making an example of those around him, if it weren't me, it would have been another journalist. I do believe that. I am sort of endlessly shocked by his feigning shock at me and at the book because it's one of the greatest subjects I've ever come across on Wall Street. And they pay me to come across 
great subjects on Wall Street. In a way, this story like echoes like a Mao biography as much as it does a financial story. It's, I would say, less about markets and more about what happens to people when they become extremely dogmatic and also create like a surveillance panopticon of basically everyone in their orbit. Did people realize that this was like a volatile thing to do to record every second of every conversation and then to have these sort of trials within the company, which were also recorded? Did any lawyer say like, we probably shouldn't do this? One of the great things about the Bridgewater story is that there isn't actually one moment where it jumps the shark. I thought that when I started this process that I would seize upon this moment and that I'd probably start the book there and then you know we would we would lead up to it. But what Ray did so effectively is it was just a little bit at a time. And at no instance can you point to one moment where it goes off the rails. And that's part of the reason why it became so easy for him to get away with a lot of this stuff, because it would have taken someone sort of hitting the stop button and saying, wait, the last five years have been crazy, right? It's not today. It's the last five years. Mm. I would say also a lot of people since the book has come out have just, they've asked me, you know, why don't people leave? And I would really encourage people to look into sort of these organizations like Scientology and, and Nexium. Nexium is the subject of this HBO series, The Vow. And in The Vow, there's a young woman who is locked in a room for two years. And the reveal at the end of the episode, not to spoil it, is the room is not locked. She could have walked out at any time, and she didn't want to, because the entire organization had taught her that she shouldn't want to. And to me, that is an eerie Bridgewater similarity. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's easier for me to understand Ray Dalio than it is for me to understand someone else in this organization who many of these people are vastly accomplished and had other high paid jobs. You know, these are people who are leaving McKinsey. These aren't people who are like, who need the work. They're people who get enmeshed in, I'm not surprised to hear you compare it to a cult. I think the, a cult is the only thing to compare it to. So thinking about it as a form of a cult, as you were putting together this book, what is your pitch to someone who is either currently in the cult or is a former member of the cult about talking about what happened within Bridgewater? Did the fact that there were recordings make it easier for people to speak publicly since they can't really deny that these things happen? Well, it helps not to tell them they're in a cult. Um, I find that people have a negative reaction to that. Generally, yes. One, I would say a lot of people do know, people still at Bridgewater and people who have left Bridgewater, that what they went through and what they are going through is wrong. So there, there was a sense of, you know, they just wanted the truth to be out there. I also did have to convince a lot of people, though, that I didn't think that they were crazy for having gone into it. Part of the great pitch of Ray Dalio and Bridgewater and the principles is that if you follow this doctrine, you will achieve a higher level version of yourself. If you give up your own values and adopt our values, you will literally be better as a human. So I always try to emphasize to people that I myself believe that I could be susceptible to that argument, particularly if you were going to pay me a ton of money while doing it. And the other thing that for years, this book took me years, so many people were basically calling me on my bluff 
they were saying, I don't believe you'll get away with it. I don't believe he won't stop you in some way. And so I can tell you that sort of the last year of reporting and writing the book, it was like an avalanche because finally people realized that it was actually happening. And then I was going back to people who I'd spoken to two years earlier and it was, it was wild. It was like I had barely grazed the surface before and now they were really ready to talk. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. So Dalio has called you a liar. There were people from the inside who said, you're never going to be able to publish this book. Tell me about what it's like to try to publish a contentious book like this. Like what are, what is the fact checking process? Like what are reads from lawyers? Like what are the additional challenges of of doing something like this compared to a a book that has no pushback? Well, how many hours do you have? I would say. (laughs) Got nothing but time for you. (laughs) When I signed the contract for this book in 2020, the first person that I told was Ray Dalio. And I said, I would love to interview you and other people, and I would love to review as many documents and videos as possible. And pretty much immediately, we were contacted by a lawyer for him, who was then joined by a second lawyer, who was then joined by a third lawyer. And they kept asking me for questions about my fact-checking process. And I said, we're doing the fact-checking process right now. Remember when I emailed and said, I'd love to hear your perspective? We call that fact-checking. I eventually did hire a fact-checker, 
And he put everything from the book into bullet points for them and sent it over for comments. And they, instead of responding to the fact check, complained about who the fact checker was, complained about the form of his questions, said now that there were too many questions. So we did eventually get back some substantive uh, responses, which I did incorporate. But we also got a lot of complaints about me, about the publisher, about everything under the sun. And the book then went through, you know, nine months of legal read. This has a happy ending, though, and not to be super jingoistic. But in the United States of America, it is pretty hard to stop the publication of a book. So my book is also published in the UK. The UK has far less attractive laws for journalists. We actually vetted this book for the UK standard so that it could be published in the UK. And I can tell you that they went through with a fine tooth comb, every person that I had spoken to, every document that I relied on, every recording, there is no sort of casual sentence in this book. So when you're going through that process, like you must have had to cut some pretty crazy anecdotes because there's like public trials over like how bagels are laid out. There's like people trying to figure out like who chose the wrong whiteboard. And were there specific things that you're like, I want to get this in the book and I need someone who was in the room to say this happened? Or how do you go after like the stuff that is right on the edge of being fact checkable or you you believe is true, but need something more to be able to include it, let's say at that UK standard. The wonderful thing about Bridgewater is that so much was recorded. So as a journalist, that means that I can have first person uh, sourcing on events that happened that are from people that weren't in the room at the time, but saw a recording of it afterwards, mm. or maybe even still have access to a recording of it. There's another thing that I did, which was a decision I made early on, which is there are no fake names in this book, except for one person who was the victim of sexual harassment. She didn't ask me to change her name. I didn't think that her kids needed to be able to Google her. There are a lot of wonderful books, uh, including Bad Blood about Elizabeth Holmes, that have amalgamated characters. Mm -hmm. They combine characters. And I, I don't say anything against those people, but I don't believe that I could have gotten away with that because I think I would have just been strung up by Bridgewater, who said, you're making things up. So I had to put everyone's real name on it. But that also meant that in the fact-checking process, I was going back to real people, and I was saying, even if you didn't speak to me before, this is what I understand about you. And it was pretty effective at getting people to talk to me in the end. There's a part of this story, there's a shift at some point in Ray Dalio, and where he realizes that the media can be an asset. Tell me a little bit about the role that you feel like journalism played, I guess, on the other side of the, uh, the Bridgewater myth. Um, journalists were hired. Journalists were, you know, on payroll. How does a company like this use the media internally to try to tell a story that's fairly different than the story you're telling? This has been something that's frustrated me for years and probably is even still frustrating me a little, which is that I shouldn't have been the functionally only journalist to have written truthful scenes from inside Bridgewater Associates. So what Ray does around 2011, 2012 is he starts to invite journalists into Bridgewater and he shows them his version of reality. He gives them lots of access to himself. 
he will sit down for hours and talk to you. He will have a PR person sit next to you while you talk to say his number two or his number three. And he does this for years upon years upon years. And it's intoxicating as a journalist when you have this much material about this incredibly important, wealthy, interesting man. I understand the impulse to just stop there. But Ray actually goes beyond journalists. He starts bringing in academics. He starts bringing in, for instance, Adam Grant, who was on this podcast a few weeks ago. And Adam Grant writes a chapter in his book of originals that's basically hook, line, and sinker, what Ray Dalio wants him to write. And afterward, Bridgewater and Ray hire Adam Grant to a paid consulting job. Adam is still being paid by Ray. He's still slinging the principles. And look, he calls himself um, an organizational psychologist, but I'm not sure how you can study an organization and only talk to the person that the CEO wants you to talk to. It doesn't make any sense. When I was a younger person, a lot of what I considered like uh, hard-hitting business reporting basically concluded that corporations were amoral sort of psychopathic units driven purely by profits. And this is the rare, but I think this is an increasing phenomenon in the world book where the richest people in the world seem to have some secondary goal that's maybe becoming a primary goal that is not purely profit driven, but is ideological and bordering on theological. Um, You've covered Elon Musk also. I would file it under a similar camp. I, I, there's a lot of things I can say critical about either Ray Dalio or Elon Musk, but it's not their pure profit motive that I think I would be criticizing. It seems like they want to be recognized, well, in the case of Ray Dalio as sort of a philosopher king, in the case of Elon Musk, kind of a like YOLO shit poster, I guess. How did you think about like what Ray Dalio wanted? Because I believe at one point he says that success is just getting what you want, but he already got a lot of money. So money can't have been the only thing he wanted. I love this topic. First of all, I think that's frankly, I could write about it for the rest of my career and not be bored because what Ray Dalio has clearly wanted is not just to be worth $20 billion, but to have you think he's a great guy. He has spent so much of his time over the past few decades constructing that artifice in every way that he can. I have written about Elon a bit, and I actually wrote a story a few years ago at the Journal about how Elon claimed to be living in this shack in southern Texas that no one believed he lived there. He was actually living in Austin where I was living in a mansion. That's fine. It's a perfectly reasonable story. We wrote it. And what I was shocked by was I got doxxed some follower of Elon was so horrified at the truth and believed sort of Elon's fake outrage about it that he went and he posted my address online. And I called someone very close to Elon and I said, what are you guys going to do about this? You know, this is my real life. And the person said like, oh no, the story's fine. I said, oh no, no, I'm not arguing about the story. I'm saying that your, your client by, you know, attacking me so much has now impacting my real life. And it was like, they couldn't see that there was another person on the end of it. And I often think that about Ray, he can't see what he's truly like. He can't see why, for instance, telling someone who works for you, I want to kick him in the balls. 
he can't see why that might not be principled behavior. So look, I don't think this is a totally new phenomenon. You know, John Rockefeller named a university after himself. So they've, they've always liked a bit of public attention, but it is remarkable, this pseudo philosophical way that now successful business leaders talk about their motivations. In a way, when I started writing about hedge funds, it was almost sort of nice that some of them just said, oh, we're in it to make money. I can deal with that. This is America. You're allowed to have that motivation. Yeah. I mean, I agree. There's a degree to which an institution that has a singular goal can be criticized on the basis of that goal. When you start having goals that are more amorphous, it's more difficult to know how to talk about those goals. I think there's no secret that probably the like Ur source for this, Steve Jobs, is kind of the like the holy grail when it when it comes to this. Steve Jobs was also one of the first people who said, like, Apple isn't just to make money. We're, we're here to like change the world or we're here to pursue all these other goals. And uh, another thing kind of institution that comes up in the book a lot is like uh, Harvard University. Uh, what did you feel like the role of uh, Harvard University in this story was? And how does a, a reporter in your seat sort of look at the credentialism and gravitas that uh, associations with universities like Harvard uh, bestows upon people like Ray Dalio. So Ray is a graduate of Harvard Business School, and he's talked a bit about uh, how important it's been for his career. And he at one point, even by the way, he gets a Harvard Business School case study about him, which we get into in, in the book, sort of the hilarity of him trying to tell the professors and successfully even telling the professors exactly what they can and can't say in their research. Now, I had heard that Ray donated all of those old research reports and all of his notes to the Harvard Library. I heard this early in the pandemic, and I thought that was a great opportunity to get sort of a first-person source material. So I reached out to the Harvard Library, and I said, I understand you have these. I would love to see them, and I'm happy to be sponsored by another institution if you'd like, if you need me to come in with an academic. And I received back not a note from the librarian, but a, a note from the PR team for Harvard Business School, filled with exclamation points, saying, must return this reporter's inquiry right now, giving me an excuse about how it wasn't available yet, but they were collating it. Now, Harvard didn't bet on the fact that it was going to take me a long time to do this book, because two years later, I reached right back out to them again. And I said, how's that collating going? Still not available. So, by the way, I don't know how much collation it takes to, to put a bunch of uh, notes in order from oldest to newest. They knew from the reporter inquiry that they did not want to let me actually use the research. And so thus they've kept it from the public. They are just essentially acting as a part of Ray's PR team. It's funny because the book is in some ways a business case study and what you would learn from it or what I would take from it if I was running a hedge fund is these interpersonal transgressions are actually much more lasting in people's memory than something you did in the markets that you probably would never get a negative book written about you for your like uh, business decisions, but you will for these kind of decisions. So I would challenge you on one thing, Go for which it. is I actually don't think it's a negative book. Fair, I, fair enough. A book. It's a, no, but that's, that's fair. And, and I, I hear the, the observation. 
I wrote this book because Ray was constructing this version of reality of himself. And he's got a book called Principles, Life and Work that offers nothing less than a blueprint for how to be better in life and work. The book says almost nothing salient about finance or investing. He's telling you how to change your personality, how to conquer sort of your weaknesses. So to me, I'm taking him up on that. I'm saying, okay, I've done an examination. I've spoken to hundreds of people. I have reviewed everything that I can, and this is what you're really like. That it happens to be in the business section of a bookstore, I guess, is to me, it's, it's almost disappointing because if you're looking for a book that will teach you how to be a successful hedge fund manager, or how to grow wealth, I have very bad news for you. I haven't written it. But if you're looking to learn about just the extent to which people will embarrass themselves for the promise of a higher payday and for the promise of greater wealth. Well, I've got about 300 pages on that. How did you deal with the question of like, what was actually going on in the business while like people were like melting down over pee on the floor and stuff like that? This was the hardest nut to crack for the book. And it wasn't even because it was a particularly important or central part of the book. But once you realize, which you do over the course of researching this, that the principles are horseshit, you realize that the only logical explanation is, of course, that this idea that there's a grand secretive investment system that only Ray Dalio knows about probably isn't the full story either. And it was the hardest thing to crack because at Bridgewater, although they had 2,000 employees at peak, they had something called the circle of trust. There's only about 10 people who have to sign a lifetime contract and are then ostensibly shown the real secrets of the investing. Extremely Sea Org vibes for the Scientology fans out there. 10,000-year contract. You know, when you start uh, a successful organization and you start asking people never to leave, you might want to reconsider your decisions. And so it turns out, of course, that there are no, as Ray puts them, timeless and universal rules for the investing, that the most important rule is that what Ray Dalio wants, Ray Dalio gets. This also has the, this has the convenient effect of explaining why the hedge fund has done so poorly for the last 15 years, because eventually you're going to get things wrong. Thinking about this as like a reporter who has to be able to say, not just this is my take, but like, here's the evidence. Like, how do you draw a connection like that? Like performance sucks running like a cult as an outsider. It's very easy for me to be like, there's a correlation between those two things, but what, what would you look for for like proof or like evidence that the performance of the fund and this management style are one and the same? It probably took me five years to talk to enough current and former investment employees and remember, Ray doesn't let anyone really see the full picture. So I have to sort of use the Venn diagram of everyone and see what's in the middle for them. I'm never going to be able to have access to the algorithms if they even exist. So, But I did talk to people all across the spectrum. And believe me, my lawyers wanted to know who those people were and how they knew what they knew. What Ray is doing, what Bridgewater does, is they make it complicated and hard for you to penetrate but the upside of that is that there probably isn't going to be another book about Bridgewater Associates unless I write a sequel because I know how much work it would take and um, I know the people who are interested in that. I've actually read his book or I've read part of his book prior to this. I'm interested in cryptocurrencies and 
my first impression when I read it was I expected the writing to be like more professional. It's just kind of like a stream of cuts. Like here's a bunch of my ideas, like in no particular order. And I think the other thing that is the most striking in retrospect is his reverence for and bet on China, not simply this is a good investment, but I think as a broader, this is where the world is going. And this is possibly a stretch, but I'm curious what you as someone who knows more about this, like, What's going on inside Bridgewater has certain echoes of the political system in China, the relentless surveillance, the inner circle, which can never change. I can't help but feel like this has echoes of like Maoism and the first generation of the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Tell me about like Ray Dalio and China and what parts of that mattered to you in writing the book? Ray and his wife actually honeymooned in the Soviet Union, which was a really interesting, just sort of one-line fact. And then he becomes extremely obsessed with China, with its leadership, and with this system of where everyone is equal, but of course, no one is as equal as the dear leader. Now, China is also, because his system mirrors it so much, it's also a huge client of Bridgewater's. So it is a self-affirming cycle there. The more he hues Bridgewater close to the Chinese system, the more money he's able to take in from China. And in China, virtually all the wealthy people in some way are connected to the government and owe the government for part of their wealth. So you need that relationship of everything that Ray has ever said critically about a political leader. I've never heard him say anything even remotely critical about China. I think that really says it all. Well, I think it it also connects to what we were talking about, about the shift from like the really rich guys of the past to the really rich guys of the present, where 25 years ago, it, it would have been kind of unthinkable to say this hedge fund billionaire is taking his cues from a Marxist-Leninist government. But as we shift from a pure profit motive to a more ideological cultish motive, it's very easy to understand how a true cult of personality is seductive, how what people have achieved in terms of building true power around their ideas that extend even past their own lifetime. It's either that or try to live forever, right? Which seem to be like the two major things people want to do with a bunch of money. Have your ideas live forever or have your physical vessel live forever? Well, and Ray very much wants the idea of Ray Dalio and the principles to live forever. I would disagree with you on one thing, which is I don't believe that it's a separate profit motive from Mm. this motivation to be loved. The evidence shows that Ray over and over again chooses money over people. He's already incredibly wealthy. He already owns or owns the most expensive home in the US. He pretends that he's not interested in money. But you know, Bridgewater, even when he ostensibly retired a few years ago, continues to pay him about a billion dollars per year as an annuity. The money is so far beyond the marginal point of utility, as as we would say for him. But it is a way to measure himself, and he does quite enjoy doing so. So you've put the better part of a decade into this story. Where do you go from here? And how do you build up this kind of knowledge base about something else, knowing that it takes this kind of personal investment to really feel like you can understand the story? 
Well, that's a that's a dark question. Uh, that's going to take me <laughs> to a dark place. I will say I don't have my next book in mind. I loved writing this book, and I love talking about it. But I'm not sure that I could spend ten years again. The thing that interests me the most is telling you the true version of someone, not just the version that they're telling you. So, for instance, Elon thinks that it's not possible to have all of these great uh, Musk world inventions without without what comes with it so far as his personality. I'm not sure I totally buy into that. I know a lot of wealthy and successful people who are not monsters. So I find that dichotomy interesting. I would also say it would be great fun to you know be Michael Lewis and to ride along with someone for a year and just tell you what it was like on on that journey. But I don't blame Michael for being sucked in by, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried. I think it's hard to be that close to your subject and to really see them as everyone else sees them. So you didn't ask this, but, you know, Ray has complained. He's called my writing, you know, tabloid and gossipy. And I just think it's good writing. Um, I don't, he's a fascinating topic and I think it's okay to tell in an exciting way. Rob, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, Thanks very much to Rob Copeland. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Susan Peterson, who edited the show and did the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox who helped us make the show. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.